Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at Long Now. I'm coming to you live from the interval to watch tonight's talk with Craig Childs. He will also be joining us live from his house in Colorado to see this edited version of his talk we recorded a few weeks ago and will be answering questions from you all selected by Kevin Kelly. I'm super excited to have Craig here tonight giving a second talk in this series. Craig is one of the greatest adventurers and explorers that I know. Where many people study the past, Craig goes out and walks the paths of the people he is studying. Those paths have taken him to some of the most inhospitable and beautiful places on earth. Tonight, we will hear about one of those journeys. Welcome, Craig Childs. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Hi there. Welcome to our home. Glad to have you here. I am Craig Childs. I'm a writer and a traveler, and I live here in Western Colorado. To give you a sense of where we are, back behind me, behind this bookcase and the house, are the San Juan Mountains. And out ahead of me, looking through that door where it just rained recently, I'm looking about 50 miles, and that's into Utah. There's a, um, a lone mountain range standing right over there. Looking south through the windows, high desert mesas that are split open by a, a canyon coming down here below the house. And like a lot of this landscape, you can see part of it. You see what's up on top. Most of it is down inside. And you learn a place. You learn how to move through it. You learn how to navigate in these landscapes. And I look for signs on the ground of, of who's been here, what kind of stories are being told by this place. This is something that came from right around here. This is, uh, it's probably a scraper on its way to becoming a, uh, a projectile point. You can see the, the fluting marks uh, and, and you can imagine somebody using this to, to scrape a hide. Uh, it's probably about 4,000 years old based on the sites around here, desert archaic culture, and it came from within uh, 100 yards of the kitchen sink. When you look around, you start to find signs of people everywhere. This is a, a nice little point that came from, from right here near the house, and you can see the, the scallop marks where, where somebody sat and worked it. It was, it was probably a longer point. Uh, maybe out to there, and it broke, and then somebody, somebody worked worked the edges of it, got it back down to uh, to make it usable again. This is the tip of likely an atlatl dart, and uh, it's it's missing its its very tip, and the the barb has broken off. But you see that uh, 
a fine work where you can imagine somebody sitting down and flaking this thing. You can see their hands where they, they used a, the, the tip of an antler and wham, knock these little pieces off. You can hear the sound, tink, 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 of somebody making this thing. Now that goes back 4,000 years ago, like I said. Uh, older is this thing. This is Clovis technology from about 13,500 years ago. And, and this is just a, a beautiful point. It's classic of, of the Ice Age. Um, you can see the, the curved bottom, this, this kind of rocket shape to it. Uh, and this is from, from big, big game hunters. Uh, people were probably also using little points like this back then, probably more often than these, but these are what really stand out. Now, this is not the original. This is a replica made by a master flint napper. Uh, his name is Greg Nunn, and he lives uh, just over, uh, if I could move that mountain range over, I'd be able to see him. He lives about 60 miles from here. I'm interested in line of sight. I'm interested in horizons, in, in what this place has been shaped like for a long time since humans have been here. This place tells stories, and I want to go back into those stories. I want to go back to the beginning, back into the Ice Age. I want to know what happened between these horizons, how people flow across the land. How many generations have seen this place? How many lives? have gone through here. This is a map of fluted points, basically Clovis and its variations. The bright orange is where these projectiles have been found, giving some sense of how people settled the land around 13,000 years ago. They were freer to spread in the east and then staggered through mountain ranges, plateaus, and basins in the west. If you looked closer, you'd be able to see trade routes and groups connected to each other. Now this is a map of novel coronavirus infections in April 2020, suggesting we have something in common with Ice Age people, at least in the way we situate ourselves and connect with others. These are maps of high technology for their time and high interaction, sticking to rivers and coastlines and the edges of mountain ranges. We use the same passes, the same gaps. We come to the same places. I brought up the shape of the land because that's my guide for finding people from the late Pleistocene. I'm triangulating. I'm looking for places on the ground where you know people were here. They left tools here, there's a, an encampment, uh, or they passed through. You know there are connections between places. Or there was a mammoth here, there was, there was a giant bison here. This is how I, I can locate myself. And then I look at the horizon around me because the Ice Age ended 10,000, 11,000 years ago, give or take, and that's not enough time for these mountains to be different. Mountains are where they are now, where they were then. The same rivers were flowing in the Ice Age. So when you go to these places, you're seeing the world as they saw it, at least in the bold elemental shapes. So here's how I do it. I find a map that shows the locations of the older sites. This is far west Texas and the bottom of New Mexico, where my family's from. I'm looking for much older sites than that, and those are the red dots where Clovis points have been found. 
and it looks like there's a concentration around what was an Ice Age lake. You drop into that place, and you see what it looks like. Well, it's windy, and it's dry. These are the gypsum sands of old shorelines. The lake bed itself is empty. Caves in the mountains there in the distance have produced bones of Pleistocene megafauna, giant sloths and bears the size of horses. They also turned up pollen and plant parts, so we can see what grew here. Now it's hard scrabble, Chihuahuan desert, hardly a tree up there. Then it was forested with pines and firs, and it hung with canyon grapes. You go with people who are willing to do damn near anything, which is maybe a prerequisite for exploring a new continent. We set camp beneath the surface of the lake as if breathing underwater. I was writing a book about the Ice Age in North America. It's called Atlas of a Lost World. I'd thought about going full Paleolithic for the book, fireboards and spears, but as you can see, I was having enough trouble just keeping my tent from blowing away. The artifacts we found were of a certain age, like this big block of styrofoam that had been blowing around in the desert for so long it was bristled with sticks that had been stabbed all over it. Time out there was hard to keep a hold of. The white sands looked like snow, yet middle of the day felt like this. I think the edges of time can be blurred, and sometimes you pass right through. I'm interested in the differences between then and now, what ties us together. In the distance, we were hearing the bombing range, atmospheric sounds of concussions far away. A friend on the trip had been a bomb diffuser for the army working in Baghdad, and he could identify what kind of weapons we were hearing. Meanwhile, I'd been looking at the kinds of projectiles people left from their time, fluted Clovis points circa 13,500 years ago. I went into collections and I studied their strike marks, which you start to read like languages in themselves. I was also looking for non-human remains, which is most of what was happening in North America when the first people were here. This is a skull of Arctotus, the short-faced bear, an American giant. If you're trying to understand these animals, I think you need to try them on. You need to look at this from, I am a human and this is a giant bear. What could our relationship have been like? Down in the basement of the Smithsonian in DC, this is a piece of dung from a giant sloth that lived in the dry caves of the Grand Canyon. Was looking at, at cabinets full of this stuff, pulling out these, these boluses, which, which are completely dry. They, they feel like you're, you're holding paper mache, and you can see the chewed up seeds and, and grasses and stems, and you can imagine this, the size of this animal. I was looking at the collection with the museum's director, Kirk Johnson, and we found this glyptodont skeleton back against a wall. Basically, it's a one-ton armadillo that lived in the south, New Mexico to Florida. And this is an interesting one we pulled out of a drawer. Can you tell what it is? It is part of the lower jaw and incisors of a Pleistocene beaver. It would have stood six feet tall on its hind legs. So why such big animals? It's pretty simple. 
temperatures were colder and mammals needed to hold in their heat. This is a constant through the paleontological record. Cold ages have big animals, warm ages like the one we're in now have small ones, and the big animals tend to leave more signs. These are Colombian mammoth trackways on a barren lake bed down in southern New Mexico around where those Clovis points showed up. These were the largest proboscideans on earth. Tusks were 13 feet long and they were encountered by people. Human tracks left in their tracks, spear points found lodged in their bones. When they walked along the shore of this lake, their weight compressed each print. And now the wind blows around them. The sediment that was packed harder stays in place a little longer. So these aren't fossils per se. They're just prints. They're just sediment. They're animal prints. And with a full trackway, you can see the mammoth actually walking. Right, left, right, left, right, left. We made long forays across these lake beds. And I wasn't really expecting to find anything. I was just there to see the weather rolling across us, these zinc-colored dust devils that would stir up. But we did eventually find what looked like seven prints of uh, Colombian mammoth. These are two of the stronger looking prints. And they could have just been blotches on the ground, some kind of mineralization, until you see the walking pattern. There was a mammoth here in this place. It moved through this space. It had a shape in the air. And I walked next to it, looking at each step, imagining its tusks swaying back and forth, imagining its shape right here in this place. I was talking with a Navajo singer in northern Arizona. And this was years ago. I was traveling through the area with my friend and we were looking for permission. So we went to his Hogan and, and we brought groceries and sacks of flour. He invited us in and we sat and talked for a while, uh, translating through his, his, uh, his adult grandson. And, and the singer asked if, if I had any questions, I could ask anything I wanted. And I said, how did your people come to be in this place? How did the Diné arrive in Northern Arizona? And he said, we came from the ground. And I knew this, this story from Navajo cosmology that, that the people emerged from underground and that's how they arrived in this, in this desert. Um, and, and so I pressed him on it and he said, no, there, there was, there was no migration. We didn't arrive from somewhere else. We came from the ground. And I think I was being tone deaf at this point, but I, I was trying to get to another point. I was saying, well, the, the Diné language, your language is here in Arizona, and it's also in the Arctic, in the Yukon Territory, in Alaska. And it's also in Siberia. So there's this arc out of Asia into the Americas. And he said, no, we came from the ground. And I looked down at the red Moen Kopi hardpack underneath his Hogan, and I thought, they came from the ground, of course. This is part of so many of the stories that come out of North America, out of the Native American tradition of going from one world to the next, arriving in a new world. For the Navajo, there are the monster slayer stories where two twins are sent out to, uh, to kill the, um, 
the monsters that occupied the world and make it safe for people. For the Clinket and Haida of the far northwest coast, the first people arrived in a clamshell that was, was sealed closed and it washed up on a beach and trickster god Raven showed up and opened up the clamshell and let the first people out. For the Hopi, the arrival into this world was, uh, the last world was flooding and they crawled through a hole, which turned out to be a hole in the ground into this world and the water rose and sent them up to here. There are so many stories about arrival and transformation that I, I think it must have been a big thing getting here, threading the eye of a needle. A journey was involved, a migration, not from some other land or continent, but from the ground, from another world, which to me means a long, long time ago, an arrival that people are still talking about. And it was probably different for everyone. If you were approaching during the late Pleistocene, the only land connection was along the Arctic Circle, which would have led into a death trap, a single glacier the size of Antarctica sitting on the brow of North America. One way or another, you were going to have to deal with this sort of environment. From Alaska onward, it was 2,000 miles of snow and ice before you'd touch ground somewhere in Montana or the Dakotas, which is why I loaded up gear with a group and headed for the Harding Ice Field in South Central Alaska. I wanted to see what they saw. 20,000 years ago, we were hardly different, anatomically almost indistinct from modern humans. Drop one in a crowd of us and you'd never pick them out. Like us, I think they would have stood on a high point at the end of a long day and looked across rock and ice with a combination of dread and wonder. Everything was bigger in the Ice Age. Their ice sheet was almost 6 million square miles. Ours was 700. But I think we would have done and seen some of the same things, scouting up into passes and then pausing at the last life before this great white emptiness ahead of us. In the Pleistocene, I think I would have snared and eaten those ptarmigan. People's diets were diverse, more foragers and scavengers than hunter-gatherers, single encampments with salmon, seaweed, and mastodon, and all sorts of roots and seeds. We ate cliff bars and meals in foil packages. We saw mountains swallowed, blazing white to the horizon, riddled with dangerous crevasses and wide open plains, and our camps were a study of humans in elemental spaces, what we do how we act in different conditions. The only notable difference beside our technology is cranial size. Humans 20,000 years ago had brains 5% larger than ours. Maybe they had a heightened sense of awe or whatever it was that drew them farther and farther. More starts going through your mind when you're out here. Everything is a sign. The only indication of life was something like this, crushed rodent bones coughed up by a bird on a high point, a rock ridge sticking up through the ice. These exposed ridges and summits are called nunataks. This is an important feature to know in the Ice Age. A nunatak is a landform swallowed almost completely by the ice with only a tip sticking through. There are these enchanting landforms, these ragged castles sitting out on the plain, and below, thousands of feet of mountain under the ice. 
people could have used these as stepping stones, hopping down the Rockies and the coastal ranges. We went up on them because it only seemed natural. This is how you make your map. You climb, you get a vantage, you see ahead. Reaching the top is like setting a compass point. On the saddle of this noon attack, I found a feather. It had melted into the snow, and nearby I found the bird's tracks, a raven. It landed up here and walked to the edge of a cornice. I could see where it came from and where it was going, maybe landing up here to rest its wings. And where it flew from the cornice, I could see the map that spread below it. I believe animals had a lot to do with moving humans into this continent. People would have come down the kelp beds of the coast and skinned boats, fishing and hunting the rich waters, and followed birds across the ice. You get swept up in migrations, and they pull you along. Where did these animals take the first people? Florida Panhandle, Wasissa River, about as far as you can get from the Bering Land Bridge without falling off of North America. Completely ice-free down here. The place was rich with megafauna remains. Right out there in the river where we're looking right now, you can see out in the middle, two guys in the 1980s found a giant Ice Age bison skull, Bison Antiquus, seven feet tall at the hump. And I imagine them lifting it out of the riverbed, one on each bony remnant of a horn. One of the things they noticed right away was a human weapon broken off in its forehead. Scientists looked at it and determined the point made of local Suwannee chert had been embedded while the bone was still fresh. And it didn't penetrate the brain case, so it was not a killing blow. You have to wonder what this story was, who threw this projectile, and what happened next. And you have to wonder what else they were encountering. I walk around my neighborhood thinking of mountain lions and bears, and it raises the hairs on the back of my neck. Imagine walking around thinking of this predator. This is a saber-toothed cat, and, uh, and this, is, uh, this is one of the animals that humans were encountering. If you open the jaw here, that's, that's about how far it would have opened. You can feel the, uh, the sabers and they are bladed on both sides. So they're designed to get into something and tear back and forth. They're designed to, to rip open anything. This is just carnage. And not all the big cats of the Ice Age were like this. Uh, the scimitar cat, that was a little bit smaller, probably about 400 pounds, um, had more serrated, uh, uh, like, a, like a steak knife, um, little teeth along the, the uh, incisors, and that was designed to, to cut open and then peel back big slabs of flesh. There was also a 700-pound uh, a jaguar called an American lion. So you had these, these big animals out there. This was the world people were living in, and Florida had the highest concentration of dire wolves and saber-toothed cats in the Americas. So this was, this was something that people would have encountered back then. So you can imagine what was on my mind when I was traveling the backwoods rivers south of Tallahassee. I was thinking of Mastodon, 
their forms hulking back in the trees, and a southern subspecies of the giant bear Arctotus, and of course big cats, numerous species, walking through the shadows. Things have changed a bit. These rivers existed at the time, but they flowed through a very different landscape. In the Ice Age, Florida was more savanna, the American Kenya, not as much water, but heavy with protein. Researchers have found entire mastodon and bison skeletons laid out on river bottoms around here, like x-rays. I joined a couple friends who were on their honeymoon crossing parts of Florida by boat. When they passed through the Wasissa, Oscilla, and Ikenfina rivers, which is the heart of human occupation in Florida going back at least 15,000 years, I jumped on. We set camps in pine palm woods, nights clicking and humming with insects, or out on the marshy flats along the Gulf Coast, which during the Ice Age, when sea levels were lower, this was still 200 miles from the coast. Florida was twice the size of what it is now. And I have to say, this was my first time seeing this part of the country, really my first time in Florida. Alligators unfurling from shore, plunging in and disappearing beneath you, armadillos and grunting feral pigs, snakes in the trees. I don't know who thought of that. Snakes in the trees, that's just a terrible idea. When you happen to bump your kayak alongside a sunning snake and you don't know the species, if it's venomous or not, you memorize its patterns, the tones of its eyes, starting to learn who lives here, because really, these are the people and you are the one passing through. I'm trying to understand what it's like to be in a place for, for the first time, looking at these animals with new eyes. And looking at the landscape with new eyes, this, this was not a kind of place I'm used to. Rivers appeared and disappeared, going under and rising back to the surface. And these sinkholes, where the rivers go back in or where they come out, is where most of the evidence comes from. We found this in the woods water welling up from below, and down inside there'll be artifacts and bones. Divers have excavated these holes, finding entire stomach contents of a mastodon, parts of every animal that lived here, innumerable artifacts from the Ice Age. We cannonballed into this particular one, and I remember the current tugging at my feet, and how dark it was when I looked down, shadows falling into shadows. One researcher described diving in one of these holes with another excavator and pulling a long ivory shaft out of a crack, part of a throwing weapon, and he was so excited that he was shouting over his regulator. And another diver told me about drifting down to the bottom with a weight belt, and it's being completely black down there, flicking on a thousand watt light, and the megafauna bones were all around him glowing like gold. I think of these as emergence places, spots on the land where the Ice Age pokes up through. This is the Galt site in central Texas, and it has human artifacts going back 25,000 years. I walked down into this pit, and I was going layer by layer, going down through time, and the lower I got, the more the ground of the, the trenches became wet, and there were uh, generators going and, and hoses pumping water back out because this was cut down below the water table, down to where people left artifacts 25,000 years ago. If the pump stopped running, this would just fill up. 
like a swimming pool. And of course, I'm thinking about the old stories down here about the old Diné man who told me that the people came from the ground. So many of those original stories are about this watery underworld. And I thought, is this the place they're talking about? Is this one of the emergence sites? We got into the bags of, of artifacts and, uh, and found the oldest one there, the last artifact that had been picked up. This is a core left behind from manufacture, but you hold it and you think, uh, at the time I was there, they were only down to the 15,000 year layer. And I, and I was thinking this was touched by somebody 15,000 years ago. This thing felt like a time machine. People arrived in this continent and then went everywhere. And this rock was still wet as if from birth. This is the oldest documented rock art in North America. It's 14,800 years old, found in the Nevada desert. And nearby is the Black Rock Desert, which at the end of the Ice Age contained the largest freshwater lake on the continent, and its edges were dotted with encampments. I walked for several days along these old lake terraces where I found these ancient encampments with weapons and tools, places where people had sat and flaked. Along the edge of this ancient lake, it must have been just an incredible place to live in the late Pleistocene. The largest mammoth found in North America was found down there on those, those old shorelines. And I'd look down into this barren and waterless place. I could see what they saw. I could see the water filling in the spaces. In the distance, night by night, we saw Burning Man growing out there on the Black Rock Desert. What's happening out there, Craig? I don't know. There seems to be some kind of drone-like madness. <laughs> Giant sculptures out in the middle of the desert. A lot of music. It looks like a ton of people, like two miles wide. That's going to be a crazy spot. At the end of the Ice Age, people started gathering in noticeable numbers. The first big sites. This is a map of the Bull Brook site in eastern Massachusetts, one of the earliest large gathering places on the continent around 11,000 years ago. Based on the artifacts, it looks less like a village and more like an organized seasonal gathering from hundreds of miles in all directions. The individual rocks found there could be traced back so you could tell where people were coming from to bring their rocks. Each point on this map is a different encampment where it appears people were working on isolated tasks, some making projectiles, some camps for scrapers and blades, some camps using tools for cutting and sewing and hide production. The lay of the site is roughly circular or semicircular, and it's gathered around a central focus. This is the layout of Burning Man, same pattern. It's how people come together, all facing inward, toward the center. These large gatherings appear to have been a reaction to a major climatic event called the Younger Dryas Climate Anomaly. I'd say this was the formative moment of the Ice Age. So let me set the stage for this last location right before all those big gatherings started happening. 20,000 years ago was the last glacial maximum, the coldest point in the Ice Age, the ice out to its farthest extent. 
For several thousand years after that, the Ice Age was stepping back, warming up. The glaciers were melting, and that meant fresh water was coming off, huge rivers and floods. So this was a, a powerful time. Um, I talked to paleoarchaeologists who say if they could get in a time machine, this is where they'd go, this warming period, 14,000 years ago, 13,000 years ago, the, the rise of Clovis. And then suddenly it changed. 12,800 years ago, the Ice Age engine turned back on. Within a decade, conditions went back to 20,000 years ago. We were now again in the cold period. The ice started expanding, permafrost started going back into the ground, and extinctions radiated out across the continent. This cold lasted for a thousand years. Let me take you to that place. That puts me here, over in the corner of Lake Superior in the deepest freeze since the 1970s. This is a NASA image of that week, late January 2014. It looked like the Ice Age was coming back, which is never really out of the question. The event is known as a polar vortex. Super chilled air that usually circulates over the pole pours down the continent, freezing everything in its path. It's caused uh, from actually from heating events elsewhere on the planet that bubble up into the atmosphere and hit the Arctic air and push it out, just throwing off the systems. The result was a deep freeze in the upper Midwest, where even ice was growing on ice. Temperatures were to negative 50. By the time I got there on the tail of the vortex, they were up to 30 below. This was my proxy for the younger Dryas, a sudden change for the cold on a much smaller scale, but something that I could, I could feel myself. I loaded up a toboggan with gear, harnessed the thing to myself and marched across frozen Lake Superior. In places, the snow blew out and I could see what was beneath me. The Younger Dryas possibly originated from a reversal of ocean currents or fallout from a comet impact. Some believe megafauna overkill from human hunting changed the biotic structure of North America enough to restart the Ice Age. It was probably all of the above because this is how our planet works. The clockwork just sometimes flies apart. When it hit in the warmest part of the Ice Age, settlements changed locations, new trade routes appeared, new kinds of tools and technologies, community structures became visible, trade centers, seasonal gatherings. No more Clovis points. Clovis was done. Weapons became smaller, more versatile, not just mammoth stabbers. It was a wide-scale adaptation, a kind of sea change. I don't know if my experience had anything in common with theirs, but my first night on the lake was kind of awful. This was my camp. No tent, a bivy on the snow, and a sleeping bag that felt like crawling into a bear. And this is me in the morning, grouchy and swollen from rolling around all night. I didn't sleep at all, trying to keep off the frostbite. And the ice was booming and thundering beneath me all night long, which was magical and terrifying. And after a while, enough. I had to chisel out the zippers just to get out of my bag in the morning and to get out of my bivy. It took me about an hour. I was supposed to do this for three nights, walking across the bay with a toboggan. But forget that. I loaded up and headed for shore, thinking, adapt to your environment. 
A few days earlier with some students from Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin, I'd helped build a snow shelter on shore. It was a Quincy, a spacious little den with a hole for an entrance. And the hole was placed so it's below the floor inside. You push your gear ahead of you and you enter this space. And the hole keeps the cold air from, from rushing in and allows the warm air to collect inside. And the, the students who had who'd built this thing, they left tea candles and a thermometer. So I lit them up. I could spread my gear out a little and relax, thinking how many people have done this in human history, sheltered against the severity outside, waiting to emerge. From my body heat and the candles, I got the temperature from negative 27 up to negative 10, which actually felt balmy. I unzipped for the first time in, in like a day and a half, pulled off my big hat, off my gloves, and I could breathe again. It was quiet in there. No sound from outside, no reference point. You'd think it was claustrophobic, but it was sheltering. It felt safe, like being in a womb. Maybe you can't help replaying the old stories. I mean, they're written into the place, the source, where people came from, the underworld. When that candle went out, the shelter fell into complete darkness. No sense of direction. So silent. Maybe this is what the beginning feels like. Dark and ready. It was the softest sleep I think I've ever had. No dreams, just clean, here at the start of an age. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Craig. That was fantastic. Uh, we're gonna be pulling Craig's feed in from where he's sheltering in place in Colorado. Welcome, great to see you. Good to see you, Xander. That was a great tour. Um, I love the the arc of it, and uh, you know, going all the way to Florida from basically Siberia, getting a sense of how people moved across the continent uh, over the last ten to twenty thousand years. Uh, and actually, it brings up one of the first questions that Kevin Kelly had: is um, you know, what's your opinion of some of these the, some of these new evidence of people coming in much earlier than that? Do you are you are you a subscriber to the earlier Americans? Yeah, I think theory. I I, th I think they go back much earlier. I th I think as as archaeology keeps looking, especially along shorelines, um, you know, underwater archaeology, uh, the the dates are going to keep going back because uh, you know right now they're they're hovering around twenty thousand years, but they're they're little inklings of of forty thousand, fifty thousand out there. Um, and and even older. So I think those dates will keep going back because people have always been coming to this place, and probably some of them didn't didn't make it. They they maybe left tools, but no genetic signature that they died off. Uh, so I, I think the story is is complicated. It's not just one one wave of people. It is tens of thousands of years of people. I mean, I love this idea that you bring up of emergence places. Is that a, did you coin that term? Is this a, is this an archeological term? No, I th it's more, uh, it's definitely, it comes from in, in my world in the, in the Southwest where, where uh, the stories are, are Hopi, Navajo, Diné stories uh, about um, emergence points. There are places on the map where, 
where people are said to have come into this world and and you know i've i've as a science writer i've taken some flack for writing about this because you know i've had people come back and go you cannot tell me that people crawled out of the ground that just did not happen and and i'm saying well you know stories are a little bit more transparent uh than the black and white ideas of of uh you know archaeological evidence only i think that there on along with archaeological evidence there has to be cultural evidence uh, human story evidence and and that's where emergence points come in there at least in the southwest they're they're all over the place you know you'll be you'll be sitting at a at a butte out in the desert and talking to somebody about this and they'll say oh yeah that's that's one of our emergence points right there and you know oh wow and another one uh people this is this is how this works people came from another world in into this one so it, it's it's a term i don't think i've coined it uh but it it fits for me to look at archaeological sites and go oh another emergence point right that's i, I love the term um kevin kelly also asks um why weren't there civilization scale settlements of Native Americans in California and Sacramento River valleys like we see in the Amazon and uh, Mississippi rivers? Or were they and that we just don't have the kind of evidence of them? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, what I've understood from coastal California is that uh, it was it was such a uh, such an abundant place that there was no need to to go on, go into the large public architecture scale, um, and and maybe it's it's just where people historically settled. I think the Mississippi River, the whole, all the all the mound building that went down down the tributaries down to the Gulf. The, some of the oldest mounds in the Americas are found down there. Uh, I think when something started 5,000 years ago, it kept going where I, I don't see that as much on the California coast. I see it more nomadic, um, uh, more, uh, you know, it's not a place where, where pyramids popped up. It wasn't, it wasn't like South America and South America has such a different history than North America. Um, the, you can't even compare the two. North America seems almost more staid, more simple, whereas South America in the Ice Age was as far as people could have gotten on the planet to find a habitable, habitable place. So that has a whole different story. And where large-scale civilization popped up, um, I think is it's where people were the longest, where agriculture uh, really had a had a foothold, which maybe wasn't so much on the coast of California because you had abundance. You didn't have to have surplus in in corn the way that uh, the way that you did in the Southwest or in the Southeast. Hmm. Yeah, I've always wondered why um, California seems to be one of the few places on Earth where uh, native early cultures didn't value gold also because uh, hmm. clearly when the first you know white people arrived in the sacramento valley they picked up nuggets the size of their fists out of the river um, whereas in central and south america and even mexico those cultures valued gold and, and everywhere else in the world do you have any sense of why is it the, the dramatic 
nature or yeah i think big heavy metals aren't good heavy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, may, they may have noticed that and and also uh the the trade routes were pretty extensive into the southwest and southeast uh there were live tropical macaws within the last thousand years being uh appearing up in northern new mexico and turquoise oh. heading south and and shell being moved around for ornamentation. Uh, so Southwest and Southeast were, were part of some pretty significant trade routes going into, uh, into Central America. And granted, this is, this is well after the Ice Age, uh, what you'd call pre-Columbian. But the, in the Ice Age, I think people were covering the same distances. Um, no sign of them using gold, uh, but they were using uh, red ochre. That was a major uh, stone for them, and actually for for everybody worldwide. It's it's the ceremonial mineral for for humanity. Shows up in in a lot of the earliest sites, and there were actually uh, red ochre mines um, in in the northeast and and in the southwest. So people tend that. 15,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, we're, we're mining uh, and, and moving red ochre along these trade routes. Nice. Uh, we're going to bring in Stuart Brand. He has some questions. Welcome, Stuart. Hey, Craig. How are you? Hi, Stuart. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for doing this. Certainly. Um, I've got a question about, and they're in the southwest, uh, you're talking about Navajo and, and Apache who arrived at a certain point out of the ground or from Siberia. And uh, when they got there, they were encountering people who had been there for a while, the various uh, Pueblo tribes. And um, so their interaction uh, was not always friendly. Uh, it's not even friendly sometimes now. I'm curious what you figured out as these various waves of humans arrived in North America uh, from Eurasia. How did they deal with each other? Uh, maybe along the way, or maybe later arrivals dealing with earlier arrivals, or, or what's your sense of the nature of interaction of those peoples? Hmm. That's that's a good question. I I. How I imagine the interaction is probably different than it actually was, uh, because I'm I'm imagining some of the the earliest people just encountering other humans is is a necessary for survival. You couldn't have been a a small group. You couldn't have been ten, twenty, or even thirty people and genetically survive. Uh, so you needed other people. You needed o over thousands of years. You had to have a better genetic pool than just a small group. Um, but then at the same time, there's plenty of evidence for uh, human remains with weapons in them. Uh, Kennewick man uh, had a, uh, had a, a spear point or, or a projectile, stone projectile embedded in his hip uh, and the bone had grown over it. So there's, there's ample evidence that, that it wasn't that much different. People were killing each other like people always do. But at the same time, you see uh, artifacts mixing. Uh, Clovis, the Clovis points of, of 13,000 years ago weren't the only points being made on the continent. There were also on the west side, uh, 
California and the Intermountain Ranges, uh, there was a, a kind of projectile uh, called a, a stemmed point, and it was totally different from Clovis. So you can see two, at least two major groups occupying the continent, and these weapons are mixing, and some of the styles are being picked up by different people. And you know, you had mentioned uh, Navajo and Hopi. The Navajo coming in later than the Hopi, uh, and and yeah, there was there was probably conflict. Um, but also you look at the evolution of Navajo culture and it has a lot of, of Pueblo in it and a lot of ceremonialism that, that comes from uh, Pueblo sources. So people are, are probably bumping heads, throwing Adelel darts at each other, uh, but also studying each other, uh, picking up languages and customs. I, I think the... The Ice Age was was a big cultural mix. I think there were people who were still connected to Siberia and people who were who had been here already for tens of thousands of years. Uh, there's evidence of of Paleolithic Europeans arriving on the northeast coast, and they probably would have arrived and found people already here. And I wonder what was that exchange like? You know, people from totally different linguistic and technological backgrounds meeting. I and I, hard to tell what it was like on the ground in the moment, but in the long run, you see styles mixing and becoming something new. I, I realized I have a, I used to spend time, uh, not nearly as much as you have, with some of the southwestern tribes, and um, I'm, I'm sort of thinking through. The, the pueblos were basically forts. They're almost like Katalhayuk, one of the first cities in the world that you know had no doors or windows on the outside you got into them with ladders and you got down into the rooms in them via ladders in the in the earliest times and it is now occurring to me that i suspect that the various pueblo tribes uh zuni and hopi and 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 were somewhat predating on each other maybe on their cornfields and whatnot and so they had those forts, I'm now guessing, probably completely wrong, but let me try it with you, before the Apaches and Navajos showed up. And then when the Apaches and Navajos showed up, they weren't worked out their own form of uh, raiding and, and whatnot. But they themselves never built forts. The Hogans are, are not at all fort-like. They're just a, a really intelligent way to get out of the weather. Do um, you have any ideas on that? Well, I think... The, the Pueblo people were there much longer, and they're more agricultural, um, you know, settle in a place, and they had, you know, very, or they still, they continue to have very tight social networks um, that, that, uh, that are based in that place. Uh, like the, we were talking earlier about this, this notion of, of, um, of emergence points. There's also, uh, a notion of the center place, which is where you've migrated to after thousands of years, the, the Hopi Mesas, uh, um, Akama, Zuni. And, and this is based on thousands of years of, of architecture and, and, uh, and public architecture, big you know, kivas, plazas. Um, and whereas the, the Athabascan influence, the, the people who came down from the north, they uh, 
they were more hunter-gatherer, more no nomadic, more mobile. So they picked up pieces of, of Pueblo life, but building building a, uh, a a Pueblo on the top of a mesa that's going to stand there for thousands of years and it's going to be occupied for thousands of years, that wasn't so much part of the, the, uh, the hunter-gatherer way. Right. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Um, we have a question from uh, Steve Sisney from uh, YouTube. Um, did you also look at previous ice ages? And if so, are there clues from that that have helped you understand mo the most recent one? Yeah, I've, I've looked at, um, uh, I guess, two and a half million years of ice ages and how they came and went and and uh, I guess one, I, my understanding of these ice ages is more uh, looking at the, the animals that were there. I, I worked for, for years on a Pleistocene dig in southern Colorado where down inside of a cave, uh, you could see the stratigraphy of, I think we had 17 ice ages that we were going through. Uh, so going back uh, uh 300,000 years, 350,000 years, and you could see, you know, here's the, here's the warm period. All the animals are small, all the bones are small, and then here's the cold period, which is much longer and much larger animals. And, and so I'm watching that, that cycle of big to small, but I'm also watching how, um, how the megafauna survives uh, from one ice age to the next, uh, because mammoths, basically kept living through each ice age. This is the only time that they didn't make it, which I think has a lot to do with humans being on the ground. Uh, but they would go up into relic ecosystems up in the Rockies, and they would wait out 10,000 years of, of interglacial. And then when the next ice age would come, they would spread back down into the land. So so I, I see this rhythm of... Ice Age, interglacial ice age, and and uh, when when humans enter the scene, that's where I see this pattern change. You know, the the big animals go extinct for the first time. They almost all went extinct in North America. So, I, I think it is important to look beyond just this one late Pleistocene moment into into the much longer moments of the, of these glaciers coming and going over over hundreds of thousands of years. I love this idea of the, the warming climate brings smaller animals um, and then you can track it by the tool usage um, of those times. And this and, you know, it's also interesting that now we have, you know, the largest mammal to ever have lived in the earth is the blue, blue whale. But I guess that the oceans are tracking on slightly different cycles. Right, right there. You don't uh, you, you're not as attached to uh, to these smaller changes. I mean, you, Definitely, whales are attached to to changes that are going on, but but terrestrial changes are, are a whole different story. Uh, it, that that is an interesting notion that we do have the largest animal in in uh, largest mammal in Earth's history. I think it's the largest animal in in Earth's history, and right. and it's but it came from the Pleistocene. Uh, it's right. it it dates back before it. It's just one that's still around, and maybe it's been able to evade us in ways that mammoths weren't able to. Yeah, they were harder to herd off cliffs right. uh, in mass in the Pacific with the 
boat technology. Um, Peter Leyden uh, um, from the YouTube stream uh, asks, is there any way to calculate how many people were in North America, mm -hmm. like in these periods in 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago? No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> very few human remains have, have survived. Um, there's a handful of, of actual people, actual human bones that have come out of the ice age. It is, it's just long enough ago that, that, uh, that people, the remains just have not, have not survived. Uh, interestingly, it's mostly children uh, that have been found, uh, and in burial contexts, which which implies that uh, children were cared for in death, whereas adults maybe they were cared for in a different way that that didn't show up. But that's a great question because it could have been a lot of people, <laughs> you know, it could have been a million people, it could have been fifty thousand people, uh, all spread out across the continent, enough to keep the gene pool going strong. Uh, and setting the foundation for, for Native America. Um, but telling how many people is, is really hard. Even, even going back uh, a thousand years into the Southwest where archeology span is just all over the place, it's hard to tell, you know, was, was this household the, you know, the seven people who lived here all represented by this one place or were they represented by these 20 different locations where they may have moved seasonally? So it's very hard to, to get a population. Interesting. Yeah. Now I remember it's standing at the precipice looking over Chaco Canyon mm. and kind of getting a sense of clearly there's, there was, you know, this massive culture that's not here anymore. Um, but yeah, what those numbers are is... I guess impossible. Yeah, too. and you look at Chaco, and you kind of spread out from there, and realize there are Chacos everywhere. There, the the Chaco and Great Houses just keep going, and you realize that oh, there were people all over this place, um, and now much more concentrated. The populations now in the Four Corners are smaller, arguably smaller than they were a thousand years ago. Um, and in the Yucatan as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I th yeah. If this this was a a heavily populated continent one way or another. And I think even going back into the Ice Age, I think uh, uh, people were everywhere. Yeah, well, the, the clock site in West Texas, not far from where you talked about, um, the, uh, well, there was a brush fire there and all of a sudden you could see the evidence of settlements and at every drainage that no longer is a, is a creek, but must have been then. And it's just wild to think of how many more people that land supported. Yeah, and people moving across it, people covering significant distances uh, where where they were carrying stone tools in the ice age 400 500 miles sometimes a thousand or more and, and so is it how many people were along that route or were they just there were these periods of emptiness you know 100 200 miles of of nothing no other human contact i really wonder i hmm. i would love to see what it was like back then yeah indeed um, well, I want to point out um, before I ask my last question that uh, I, I believe we posted to all the streams a, uh, a link that allows you to order your book uh, about this uh, from and other books uh, of yours that I would highly recommend. They're some of my favorite adventure stories um, Thank you. Uh, from local booksellers. Um, and um, Kevin Kelly is going to give us our last question to, to close out tonight. Um, how has your research into Ice Age humanity changed your concepts of what humans will seek in the next thousand years. Hmm. 
Uh, that's a that's a good question. Because uh, <laughs> I, you know, I look at people arriving in North America, and I think, um, you know, in one way, I think, okay, this is the the Native American foundation. This this went to a a, a certain group of people, but I also look at it and go, okay, this is human. Um, let's look back and see what humans did. And, and I especially look at the Clovis period and, you know, it was a time of incredible climatic change, sea levels rising in ways that, uh, that we can't conceive of right now. I, I mean, it was, it was a pretty dramatic environmental change at the end of the ice age and, and, uh, their reaction to it seems to have been make bigger weapons, kill larger animals. And that's when you see a lot of the major megafauna kills is, is right in that time period. And I wonder, I look at us and I go, okay, is that something that we're doing? That, that we're experiencing a lot of social change, climate change uh, over a over hundred years and we build the biggest weapon we can build. Uh, we, we build up a nuclear arsenal is this is this how humans do it and when things get hard when things get thrown in our faces environmental changes that are extraordinary do we do we say we are actually huge and we will dominate and that i worry about that because i i go okay well what does that mean with our scale of civilization dominance i mean we're already dominating so much but then what came after you know that younger dryest period when things got cold is people broke into smaller groups that were still connected, but they changed, they adapted. No more giant Clovis points. They, they became the foundation of Native America. And that's, that's where I look at our, maybe not where we want to head, but where we naturally head is, is we use ourselves up and then we fall back and go, okay, how do, how do we do this? How do we adapt? What, what do we make out of ourselves next? Which I think that question was probably being asked in Clovis time before everything changed. I think the questions we're asking now are the ones that are going to make the future a thousand years from now. Thank you so much. This is fantastic. And I can't wait to read about your next adventure. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having me here. Absolutely. Take care. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.